You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, that's the text for this morning. We are in the book of Acts. Sermon series called The World Tups, Ups, Turned Upside Down, excuse me, and one of the premises of the sermon series is that when, when Christ ascended into heaven, he set the church on mission to tell the world about the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's that message, the world turned upside down, it is that message that caused the world to be turned on its head. And so we continue on in that theme in the book of Acts, and we really see it this morning. As a matter of fact, we're, we're confronted, in light of our culture, with some very serious realities about what we believe. Um, there are some particular truths in Acts 4 that you're going to have to wrestle with, because the prevailing opinion of culture is going to push against you. The passage we have in front of us this morning, touches upon what it looks like for Christians to engage the world with the gospel message. Uh, Today's passage should encourage us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with friends, family, co-workers, etc., but also paint a, a realistic picture of what you face. Here's an example of what I mean just for my, my personal life. Um, every, every year, my side of the family gathers in Dubuque, Iowa for several days. We, in July, we all kind of descend. My three brothers, uh, their family, my mom and dad. Uh, we gather together, and we basically talk about three things. Um, my wife can testify. We talk about politics, religion, and the Minnesota Vikings. Like, if we branch out, it's a, it's a pretty good trip. Like, it's getting unique. But religion, politics, Minnesota Vikings, those are generally our wheelhouse when we, when we gather together. And if, if you know me, you know that I grew up in a religious home, but I, I, I didn't grow up in a home that, that embraced the exclusive claims of the gospel. The, the spiritual message of the house I grew up in was, be a good person, God will accept you, and you will go to heaven. That's the message I was told growing up. Be a good person, then God will accept you, then you will go to heaven. So... When God's grace moved upon my cold, dead heart and revealed the gospel to my soul in my early 20s, the tenor of the religious conversations changed in my family. Just, my brothers were shocked. Like, this isn't Sean. This is the guy we grew up with. At first, the conversations were awkward and at times hard. Several members of my family who I love and they love me were a bit... um, hostile toward me because of what I believe. But in time, the conversations became cordial and respectful. Two years ago, I had an unforgettable conversation with my, with my older brother, who I love, and he and I were sitting alone on the front porch. It was just him and I. Kids were in the backyard. Again, we're at my parents' house, and he was asking me about church. He, generally speaking, doesn't go to church, but he moved to a new, new area, and there was a church in the neighborhood, and he's like, well, I don't know anything about this. Can you help me out? Thinking about going back. Okay. And then he asked me this question. It was kind of out of left field, but kind of not. He said, do you think that if a person does not believe Jesus is the Son of God, then he is going to hell? That was the question. Like, 
That's pretty direct. And he knew what I believed. I don't think he was being antagonistic, but I think he was asking the question with sincerity. To reframe the question, my brother was asking me if faith in Jesus is the only way to be saved. I remember receiving the, the question, wrestling with it, and figuring out how to respond. I paused for a moment and gave it to him straight. I said, yes. If a person does not believe by faith that Jesus is the Son of God who died on a cross for his people, rose from the grave, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, if you do not believe that by faith, brother, yes, you're going to hell. My, my brother, again, mutual respect for each other. You know, he just kind of grabbed his drink, looked in the front yard, and just had this pensive look on his face. You see, the implications and consequences of believing or not believing that Jesus is the only way to be saved is troubling for some and life-giving for others. There are implications and consequences for being the one who carry the message of Christ to other people. As we turn the page into Acts 4, we will begin to see various reactions toward the gospel. And the claims of the gospel. People are going to react toward the claims. People are going to react toward the messengers who bring the gospel. God shows us in Acts 4 and throughout the remainder of the book of Acts a couple of specific consequences of the gospel. First, not everyone who hears the gospel is saved by the gospel. Second, within the segment of people who are unable to receive the gospel, some are going to be hostile toward the message. And then third, if you are going to tell others about the gospel, then you can expect to receive hostility from people who find the gospel offensive. A result of having faith in the Son of God, who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on a cross to atone for the sin of his elect people, rose from the dead to show that death had no claim on his life, and then ascended to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Having faith in this message means... You are embracing, biblically speaking, an exclusive claim that comes from the gospel. Again, this is not a comfortable message, especially in this pluralistic, tolerant culture. But I think it's biblical. And because Jesus and the message of the gospel are offensive to those who do not believe you may be persecuted. I, I know that my older brother, while on my parents' front porch, was not going to persecute me. But he did ask me the question that all Christians will be confronted with in one way or another, and we need to be ready to answer. It's the question Peter was confronted with in Acts 4. What's interesting about Acts 4 is that Peter and John's run-in with the religious bigwigs is because of what we read in Acts 3. In Acts 3, we read about how the lame beggar was healed in the name of Jesus. Acts 3, verse 6. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And then he preached about it right after that. 
Peter seized the moment to preach the gospel to the large crowd. Acts 4 is the consequence of their actions. So Luke, the author of Acts, spends an unusual amount of ink on the story of the healing of the lame beggar. And then he spends more time telling us everything that transpired as a result of the healing. Like, what's going on? Well, let me tell you. God, I think, wants us to see something very specific this morning from this passage, and it's this. What Peter and John experienced from these religious authorities is not the exception to the Christian life. It's the rule. We don't feel that as much in America as the rest of the world does and as history shows us. What Peter and John experienced is not the exception to the Christian life. It is the rule. For a moment, look at who confronted Peter and John while Peter was preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 2. We got the priests of the temple, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees confronted them because they did not like the message they were teaching and preaching. The Sadducees, they were just like a particular religious order within Judaism, definitely had their undies in a bunch. They had their undies in a bunch because they did not believe in a Messiah. They did not believe in a resurrection of the dead, and that is the message Peter was preaching. So they were all hot and bothered about what was going on. So they confronted them, arrested them, and then Peter and John were put into prison. Before moving on to the conversational exchange that takes place in our text, look at verse 4. After they were arrested, we read this. But many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So, Even though Peter and John were arrested, God still used the preached word to save. Think about that. The Sadducees, they could arrest the apostles, but they could not arrest the gospel. This truth should tell us something about the power of God to save and not Peter, John, Sean Powers, or anyone else. God saves. Even though there is resistance, right? That's what's going on here. There's resistance to the gospel message. Even though there's resistance, what's happening? Revival is breaking out. 3,000 were saved at Pentecost, Acts 2. We got 5,000 right after uh, Peter preached in the temple. And that likely does not include women and children. Now, I'm not a math major. I am not the brightest bulb on the porch. However, In a short amount of time, 3,000 plus 5,000 plus women and children is a lot of people. A lot of people saved from their sin and from the clutches of death and hell because the good news of the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ was proclaimed. Here is a principle from verses 1 to 4 that American Christianity misses. It is a principle that gets fleshed out in the rest of this passage. Faithful gospel proclamation invites persecution. Faithful gospel proclamation invites criticism. Faithful gospel proclamation invites Twitter hate. It could be 
The reason why American Christians don't feel persecuted is that, generally speaking, people aren't preaching the gospel. Ever think about that? And I'm just not talking about what takes place on a Sunday morning. I'm talking about what you say to your neighbor, your coworker, the barista, whoever God puts in front of your life. Also, or conversely, and this is more obvious, this is a more obvious principle from verses 1 to 4, a reason why we do not see revival in our churches is because the gospel's not being preached. Why are people not getting saved? Well, are we submitting to God's will? Make this very local. Are we submitting to God's will and his command to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ? Are we submitting to that? Embracing that. Receiving that with joy. Let's have an honest moment here. In conversations with non-Christians, and, and perhaps this is more a reflection of myself, but maybe you fit these categories. In conversations with Christians, we would rather A, not mention our faith, or B, mention our faith in the most agreeable terms so that we can keep the peace, so we don't rock the boat, right? Don't want to make things awkward. And yet we stand and wonder why more people are not getting saved. It could be because you fear the persecution, the weird looks, the awkward moment. Often fear can prevent us from trusting in the power of God to save. I know that it is God who saves. However, God desires to use us, his church, like a tool in his hand to carry the gospel message to all people. This passage intends to push us in the face of winds that can be counter to the gospel. It tends to push us back into the culture to tell people about Jesus regardless of the consequences. As we begin to look at the heart of this passage, look who, who confronts Peter and John after they spend a night in prison. So they were initially confronted after, when Peter was preaching. We got the Sadducees, and then we're put into prison, and next day, who do we have? The rulers, the elders, the scribes, Annas, the high, high priest, Caiaphas, John, who we don't know anything about other than here, Alexander, same, same thing, shows up here, then disappears in the Bible. And all the high priestly family, that's verses 5 and 6, basically, all the religious hotshots leaders came out to deal with these rebel rousers, Peter and John. Seems a little heavy-handed, <laughs> They came and they confronted him. We, we should note the comparison between what we see here and the time Jesus was taken before the Sanhedrin. In Luke 22, before Jesus took the road to the cross, he was confronted by the religious leaders and they wanted to shut Jesus down. They wanted to shut his message down. And then they asked Jesus a question in Luke 22. Are you the son of God? They wanted to hear it directly from his mouth. And in, 
our verses today, between verses 7 and 20 in Acts 4, the religious leaders use the same tactic. They ask two questions, which result in two responses from Peter. Here's the first question, which is directly asked to Peter and John. By what power or by what name do you do this? He's talking about the healing of the lame beggar. Tell us, how did this happen? We've been hearing rumors. What's going on? The religious leaders asking the question in light of the healing of the lame beggar, um, it's not totally out of the realm. Let's make no mistake about it. John and Peter are on trial, and the religious leaders are asking the right question. Even if the religious leaders were paying attention to Peter's sermon, right, in the temple a couple weeks ago. Even if they were paying attention and they heard Peter say he was healed in the name of Jesus, they wanted to look him right in the eye and hear it directly from his mouth. Further, and this is a bit foreign to us in light of Western medicine, but when a person was healed from the slightest sickness in the first century, the question was always, how? How'd that happen? What God or gods do you serve? Therefore, when a person who had been unable to walk for 40 years, from birth, 40 years, unable to walk, then all of a sudden he is able to walk, the natural question is going to be, how? Or who? What is going on here? I'm going to ask that question. And after I get the, get the answer, I'm probably going to ask, answer, ask the question again. That just doesn't happen. It's not supposed to happen. Well, Peter, in Peter-like fashion, saw an open door to share the gospel. And uh, Peter, like, kicks down the door, and he speaks. Here's how he responds to their question. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Let it be known to all of you. <laughs> Can you imagine the guile he must have? being confronted by all these religious authorities. Let it be known to all of you that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by his name, this man is standing before you well. Peter answers the question. By the name of Jesus Christ, this beggar was healed. I have a couple thoughts about Peter's answer. First, Luke tells us Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not that Peter didn't already have the Holy Spirit. When a Christian is saved, they receive the Holy Spirit. But God, the Holy Spirit, according to his sovereign purposes, decided to uniquely fill Peter so that he could preach to his accusers. And I would imagine when it comes to sharing the gospel with an adversary or your friend living next door, you need God, the Holy Spirit, to help you. In Matthew 10, we read about Jesus preparing his disciples about what we read in Acts 4. Here's what Jesus said. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. What is not being suggested is that you're to be thoughtless when opportunities arise to share the gospel. 
You don't leave your mind at the door. It's not what's being said here. We want to be thoughtful. Um, we want to think well about what it looks like to share the gospel. But you need to remember, Christian, that God the Holy Spirit is in you and is with you to help you speak. So we can look at Acts 4.8 and allow it to inform our prayers, right? Um, God, when I share the gospel with my coworker, or fill in the blank for yourself, fill me with your spirit, give me the words. And if you pray, and you act upon your prayers, you know what will happen? You'll see God work. I'm not a betting man. I'm not. But this is how much I trust God. If you feel hesitant to share the gospel with somebody, I want you to pray. Ask God for help. Ask God the Holy Spirit to give you the words and then do it. If you follow through and think God didn't give you the words, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Seriously. Buy you a cup of coffee. So I dare you to take me up on my offer. Trust God to provide you with the words to share the gospel with others. Trust God. We also read in verses 8 and 9 that the lame beggar was healed in the name of Jesus. Peter goes out of his way to say, you killed Jesus and God raised him from the dead and therefore the same power that raised Jesus from the dead also raised the lame beggar up to his feet This man was not healed in the name of Muhammad, Confucius, or Buddha. All are idols. The living Son of God healed this man. Peter answers the question of the religious leaders, but he's also going to highlight another point. So Peter continues to preach. This Jesus is the stone... That was rejected by you. You guys rejected him. He came to offer grace and mercy and love, and you pushed back on him. But this stone that you rejected, you builders, has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So after quoting Psalm 118, that's actually verse 11, Peter drops the bomb. He says twice in the negative, verse 12, that you cannot be saved through any other means than through Jesus Christ. It is one thing to say that in the name of Jesus, a person is physically healed. However, to say that your soul can only be healed by Jesus is an exclusive claim rejected by many. In our day, it's not offensive to say Jesus saves. That's not the offensive statement, provided that others can save as well, whether you save yourself or some other religion. That's not offensive. What is offensive and perceived as intolerance is when it is said that the only way to be saved is being given faith to believe Jesus is the Son of God. Here's what Peter is saying without saying it. Every other religion is false. Again, not a popular message in our culture at all. 
you say that out loud, you'll get some flack. No other religion can provide for you the way to truly know God. Here's a spot on quote from a 19th century English preacher, Charles Spurgeon. And he just gets right to the point. Biblical faith is intolerant. (laughs) You hear that? Biblical faith is intolerant. He isn't being mean. He's just calling them what it is. Other religions may admit that there is salvation in 50 religions beside their own, but we admit no such thing. There is no true salvation outside of Jesus Christ. I said right at the beginning, this is, this is an uncomfortable message because of what we are constantly told. Since moving to Iowa, moving back to Iowa, I've had several um, providential conversations about um, Redemption Hill Church and why we planted a church. One particular conversation that stands out is, when I, is one I had with a community leader here in Waukee. And we were talking about the church in general, and then I said, the church is inclusive. But the gospel is exclusive. What I was attempting to convey is that the local church needs to be the most hospitable, loving, and welcoming community. Redemption Hill Church needs to be the most hospitable, loving, and welcoming community in the entire metro. All are welcome to come here. Our doors are wide open for anyone. Anyone. Whether it be a Sunday morning service, our community groups, and your homes. Redemption Hill must be a community of people who demonstrate the love of Christ to every single person that we encounter. All are invited into this church. So I made that clear. Why? Several reasons, but here's one. We want people to be confronted with the claims of the gospel. We want people to hear about Jesus so they can hear the saving message of Christ because without faith in Christ, a person will only know eternal separation from God. Without faith in Christ, a person will never know true love, true joy, and true happiness. Without saving faith in Jesus Christ, a person wanders in this world. The exclusive claim of the gospel is that there is no other way to know God than by faith in Jesus. Now, the gospel is inclusive in this sense, and I've already kind of said it, All are invited to come and hear. Receive spiritual healing through faith in Jesus Christ. And while all are invited, we know not all come. And when they do come, not all are saved. Friends, there's only one road to knowing God. There's only one road to eternal life in heaven. There's only one road which leads to the forgiveness of sins. There's only one road to happiness. There's only one road to joy. There's only one road to receive grace, mercy, and love 
and that is through Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Again, here's the exclusive claim. That's, what, that's good and all. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you don't like what I'm saying. You contend with God's word then. Wrestle with that. No one comes to the Father except through me. Listen, I really want you to see this. Our, our country and culture are increasingly becoming post-Christian or de-churched. That is if you believe America was ever Christian in the first place. Regardless. If you believe and are bold enough to tell others of the gospel, and if you say there is only one way to know God and be saved, then you might be called a bigot. Narrow-minded. Unloving. For some, it will not matter how you package the gospel message. You, you might invite a non-Christian over for dinner, provide a five-course meal, and in love want to offer hospitality, share the gospel, and they might reject you to your face. We don't, we can't control that. But we want to be faithful. We want to be faithful to God. The gospel is an offense. However, for others, however, for others, the gospel will become the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes Romans 1.16. Remember, back to our text here. 3,000 3, were saved, 5,000 were saved, not including women and children, and they were persecuted. So people were rejecting, some people were receiving. God was saving. So my exhortation to you is to not retreat as the winds of pluralism and tolerance blow in your face. Instead, be bold, verse 13. Know that your courage, boldness, and words come from an unshakable foundation. What does it say? A cornerstone. And as you are bold and courageous, you will see God work and your faith will grow. After Peter answers the first question, the religious leaders were taken aback. That's kind of how our narrative develops. Peter answers the question, the religious leaders are like, whoa, didn't see that one coming. Peter preached again. That's what he did. They were surprised that Peter, who had never been to seminary, uh, was just a regular dude with a full-time job fishing, was able to convey deep spiritual truths. And Peter was able to look at his accusers in the face and answer with boldness. The religious leaders were stuck. They knew that the majority of people had witnessed the healing of this lame beggar, right? They're like, ah, guys, everyone saw this. And yet, we don't agree with what Peter's saying. What do we do? What do we do? So, is how I imagine it in my head. All the leaders get together, little holy huddle, conversation. Here's the other question. What do we do with Peter and John? What do we do? They break out of the holy huddle. What they did was lecture Peter and John and said to not speak to anyone in the name of Jesus. Do not teach people about Jesus. Do not preach about Jesus. Do not go to your local cafe and have coffee with your friend and tell them about Jesus. They don't want the name of Jesus preached. They don't want the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus heard. They're like they did with Jesus in Luke 22, they wanted to shut it down. It's worth pausing for a moment to ask a probing question for you and for me. How would you respond if someone told you that you could not speak about your deeply held beliefs? 
Right? Imagine you were like in Peter or John's position. You can't say that. How'd you respond? At this point, it would be easy to segue into global Christianity. There are Christians who live in countries and cultures where the name of Jesus is anathema. To speak the name of Jesus is to sign your own death certificate. But let's keep it local. If an authority in your life said you cannot talk about Jesus, how would you respond? Now, on the one hand, God calls all Christians to uh, honor authorities, Romans 13. We are to honor authorities unless the authorities in our lives tell us to live in a manner contradictory to the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The late R.C. Sproul has said, If any authority under heaven comes to the Christian and tells him that he may not pray, think Daniel, or preach, or worship, or tithe, or do anything of these things God commands, that Christian not only may disobey, he must disobey. For Peter and John, all these religious leaders were, the, were their authority. These authorities told them to not talk about Jesus, but Peter appealed to a higher authority, God. Peter says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen Memorize this verse, friends. It will help you if the authorities in your, in your life ever tell you you can't share your faith. Early in pastoral ministry, I, I was friends, this is back in the Twin Cities, I was friends with a public school teacher. And um, he had engaged me in conversations about how to share faith in his workspace, right? He had friends who were Christians who try to share their faith as teachers, but they were reprimanded by their administration. And he's like, what do I do? Um, and I simply said, you know, honor your authorities. Honor your authorities. But never miss an opportunity to tell someone about Jesus. Do it with tact. Be winsome. And always love. But remember, you are first a Christian before you are a teacher. And I would say to all of you, you are a first a Christian before you are a mother and father. You are first a Christian before you are an employee. You are a Christian before you are a student. You are a Christian before anything else you could potentially find your identity in. Yes, we need to be thoughtful, winsome, loving, but never forget your identity is Christ. One more story about the challenge of sharing faith in our culture. Uh, again, before moving to Iowa, my oldest daughter was in a public charter school. And if you, many of you know Chloe. She loves to talk. And she's a great conversationalist. Love her so much for that. And she was telling another student about Jesus. And her teacher shut it down. Essentially what that teacher was doing was putting my daughter into the same predicament as Peter and John. I mean, if she's being confronted, imagine how we would be confronted in sharing about the gospel. I'm not trying to paint a dim picture of culture for you. 
That's not really my, that's not my intention at all. There's a lot we can celebrate about what's going on around us, for sure. I'm trying to paint a realistic view of culture so that when the ultimatum is given to you, you'll be prepared to respond with faith. I want to end with these thoughts in light of our text today. Our motivation to tell others about the soul-saving message of Jesus should not come from guilt or fear. Sometimes that can happen, right? Oh, I need to do this. All right, I'm going to go do it. No, it's not where it should come from. We should not be motivated to share the gospel out of coercion, right? I, don't, I want us all to be involved in sharing the gospel, but I don't want to twist your arm. I mean, I want to preach, I want to motivate, I want to show you that there's a different foundation we need to work out of, but not coerced. We want to be motivated to share the gospel out of God's love for us and our love for God. When we have a greater sense of God's love for us, we will turn around and want others to know that same love. Right? That's a much better foundation to work out of. God loved me first. And now you love God and your life is changed and you want others to know about Christ. So even in the midst of persecution or if somebody doesn't like you sharing the gospel, you can come back and say, well, I understand, friend, but I still love you and I still want you to know Jesus. Jesus.